This is Empowering Women Through Sports. I am your host, Allison Ferguson. This episode illustrates how sports provide a solid foundation to help us achieve our goals in life. Stacy Margolin, now Potter, played pro tennis in the heyday with Tracy Austin, Martina Navratilova, and Billie Jean King. She reached a ranking high of 18 in the world. We'll delve into Stacy's background and how she's translated her tennis history and education into a rewarding business as an integrative nutrition health coach. Hi, Stacy. Welcome to Empowering Women Through Sports. Hello. I am so, so excited to be here and to speak with you, Allison. Well, I, I just got to jump right into this tennis thing because, as you know, I'm a tennis player, and or I should say I play tennis. <laughs> I know that you learned very young, as did I. However, not everyone takes their tennis to the level that you did. How did you get started? How old were you? And and was there a mentor involved? Well, I got started because my brother played tennis. And he's six years older than me, Mike Margolin. And basically, my parents threw me in a local high school park group class. And so I was with two other girls, and I think I was seven. And even then, I was sort of annoyed that I came in second place, even in that class or something. (laughs) Stacy grew up in Beverly Hills, but her family didn't belong to a country club. She played at her local La Cienega and Roxbury Parks and Rancho Park in Cheviot Hills. I would follow my dad, who was self-taught, and my brother to the local park. Uh, Well, we had a few local parks, but but this one was in Cheviot Hills, and it was Rancho Park. It's a pretty famous park in in Los Angeles. And they would go play on the courts, and I literally would stand in front of the backboard for hours. And I just did it for one, two, three hours at a time. And then finally, when I was about 10 my dad or mom put me in lessons with the local pro there who was Jerry Teagarden. And Jerry Teagarden ended up coaching Margaret Court, Virginia Wade, uh, his own daughter, Pam Teagarden played on the tour. And I remember watching by the gate, you know, looking at Margaret Court and thinking, oh my gosh, there's a Wimbledon champion like at our park. And I eventually got on those courts myself and uh, Mr. Teagarden taught me for about a year. And that's when I started playing tournaments was at 10. I actually didn't win my first tournament till I was 12. And that's when I first played Tracy Austin. It was the 12 and under tournament and she was like nine or something. She was from Palos Verdes in Southern California, you know, so we all went to these Southern California tournaments every weekend. That's when I first got ranked, was in the 12 and unders, and I was ranked sixth in Southern California. Stacy first met Tracy Austin at these tournaments, and they became friends in a healthy competition way. Palos Verdes was about 45 minutes from Beverly Hills, where Stacy lived, so it was a big fun deal when she got to have a sleepover at Tracy's family home. She says they'd played 20 sets over a two-day period with lots of other great kid players. Stacy says she and Tracy have known each other over 50 years, and they're still friendly to this day. Having Tracy Austin as that competitor that you always have to go against, I mean, you have to almost have your A game every time because you know this is a, a solid junior player. Yeah, and that was drilled into me by 
I mean, my dad sort of, he helped with that intensity, I guess, or that drive that probably was there, but that he just encouraged because he, well, he was a lieutenant in the army. He was very disciplined. I mean, I remember from a very young age getting the comments like, you just stay out there until, you know, like until you either come off with a win or you have your tongue hanging, but basically you just stay out there and be patient. You know, I was small and obviously so was Tracy, but I was, I was one of the smaller ones from my age. So I didn't have the huge shots or the big serve and volley that like, my competitor Leah Antonopoulos had when she was 12, she was serving and volleying, you know, I had an underhand serve. I didn't learn how to do a regular serve until I was 13. I mean, when you think about that now, and that's old, right? Well, that could be because the wood rackets were heavier too. I mean, it's hard to wield a racket when you're 11 years old and like 60 pounds. Yeah. And, and Jerry Teagarden told me, he said, Hey, if Peaches Barkowitz, who was a top you know, Wimbledon player. And, and if she can do it, you know, you can do it. And so I, I served underhand. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I did have that competitive drive. You know, I remember when I was one match, uh, I was maybe 16 or 17 playing at the junior sectionals. And I literally, the points were so long and the match was going on so long that I threw up at the back of the court. And I remember the umpire at the time, and he's like, um, uh, somebody please bring a towel to court too. You know, <laughs> like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. But um, that's how much I just was out there and tried my hardest. And my dad said, don't give away any unnecessary points. Just don't miss, you know, and that became my game of just running everything down and staying till the end. Was part of your drive to please your dad and brother? Wow, are you a psychologist? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm uh, armchair. I'm I'm digging yeah, into well, my armchair psychologist, Allison. You got it right because I didn't even realize it at at the time. You know, you're just eleven, twelve, thirteen, and yeah, I was doing it definitely to please my parents and more so my dad because he was the one that was instrumental in taking me to the tournaments and practicing with me every weekend. And he was someone I just totally looked up to. He was just such a, you know, phenomenal dad and person. And so no doubt I, I wanted to please him. I was more afraid of losing than, than wanting to win. I think that's what drove me. I mean, even when I was in college, I played my best friend from Florida and I beat her 6060. I mean, I wasn't going to give her anything, you know? So it was just me wanting to perform at the very highest. And the, the one, one thing that does stand out as far as wanting to please that actually was a pressure is when my dad became ill, I was at, I was 16 and I was playing a tournament in Long Beach or something against Leah Antonopoulos, who was number one at the time. And we went into a third set and I so wanted to win so, so badly because he had just gotten out of the hospital and I didn't win. And I thought my world was going to collapse. You know, I came home and I just went to my room and I, I couldn't even face him. I was so, cause I wanted something to give him that would give him pleasure. 
So it's not like I didn't feel loved if I didn't win, but there was definitely more attention given when I won. When I did lose, and if it was even in the finals, the house got very quiet. Wow. <laughs> you know, and when I won, it was like, hey, let's go out to dinner. Let's go to McDonald's. Let's get you your favorite apple pie. Um, so there was definitely this reward. I wouldn't say necessarily a punishment on the other side, but just like big accolades if I won. Wow. Well, you had it in you because you go to USC and you're the number one singles player at USC. That is not a small feat. Did you choose USC over another school? Did they seek you out? How did that work? That's a great question. Uh, I think, yeah, USC might have picked me because my brother went to USC uh, six years before me. My mother went to USC and my uncle went to USC. So I definitely had this lineage of USC. And not only that, but I practiced at USC when I was a young teenager. I was practicing with a couple of gals on the team when I was 16. That's great. So I was familiar with the campus. I just, you know, loved the courts. Then, of course, when I was dating John McEnroe and we were deciding on, you know, okay, what school are you going to go to? What school are you going to go to? I did apply to Stanford and I got in as well as USC. I only applied to two schools. <laughs> wow. And, let, you know, why don't you just start at the top there, Stace? <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, it, but it wasn't even a question of which school was I going to go to. John and I had talked about like, well, we're not going to choose a school just because the other person's going there. I was just so excited to be going to SC. I mean, at the time we had so many great national players that were there and going there in my year. So we ended up having this phenomenal team where even the seventh person, like, okay, you have six singles, but the seventh person was nationally ranked. I mean, and we were all from Southern California. Oh, super high competition. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up John McEnroe. Oh, are you? <laughs> it sounds like, well, I mean, if, it's like you're choosing a house, you know, together. <laughs> oh, which college are you going to go to? Well, we can't yeah. do that. Is there a little story in there? Oh, gosh. Um, so many stories. I mean, we, we first met at uh, a junior tournament when we were 16. So we, we, you know, got on with each other and we're pen pals and there was this friendship that ensued. One funny story was, uh, well, he would come visit me. And he's going to school where? Actually, at this point, he was going to school at Stanford and he would come to, I was living in Beverly Hills at my parents' house. And so he would drive down in his Ford Pinto, this like, rickety car and it was just so ugly i mean <laughs> it was just this red pinto and it had just bird stuff he never washed it you know and he stayed at the house and then he's leaving and he didn't have any money on him to get gas and so he said mrs m as we call my mom Ms. m um can i have some money you know to put gas in my car she should ask him that now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, when we first met and first started dating, he was very sweet and innocent and um, supportive. And as his tennis started skyrocketing, mine went a little different direction. So the focus was, was a lot on him. And then it became, well, 
hey, why don't you come visit me at my tournaments? And I'd be like, well, I've got tournaments to play too and get ready for, you know. So that became difficult. And plus he lived on the East Coast. I lived on the West Coast. So, I mean, we managed for five and a half years to keep it going, but. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's what you are when you're a pro tennis player. You have your own goals and you don't look to hang on to your boyfriend's goals or whatever. You go after your own. Yeah, yeah. So you're a lefty, and how was that helpful, do you think? Well, there were mostly right-handed players, so they weren't used to seeing a different kind of spin from a lefty. And since I wasn't a very super powerful player, I was small in stature and didn't have a huge serve, but I did have a lefty spin serve. And very often I was able to, uh, especially in the ad court, get it to people's backhands and it would then open up the court for me. So I, I think people did have a hard time with it. Like I said, even though it wasn't powerful, but it did sort of spin and then I could do it in different ways, you know, spin it into their body. And Well, you mentioned that even Martina Navratilova and Stan Smith had trouble with your serve. Yeah. I've, in one season, I played Martina Navratilova, who was number one at the time. I played her five times in one season, which is probably a record. <laughs> Almost came close to beating her. I was, I did go three sets with her one time. And then in another match, we went to a couple of tiebreakers. And that time that I was uh, playing her in Florida, when I got one of the sets and thought, oh my gosh, I'm actually going to beat Martina Navratilova. And the crowd was going crazy. My serve was working really well. And I was mixing it up. I was going into her body. I was pulling her out wide, even on her powerful forehand, it would then open up the court for me. So then I could send it to her other side, which was her, her slice backhand. So, and then um, Stan Smith, uh, his partner was Ann Smith, who was an incredible doubles player. She was number one in the world in doubles. And John McEnroe and I played the mixed doubles at the U.S. Open on center court against Stan and Ann. They weren't related. This is the 1980 U.S. Open? Yeah. And uh, went three sets. You know, I, I chose not to serve and volley against Stan Smith because, you know, I thought, okay, this guy's return is just, he's going to just kill my serve. But yet he had a, a difficulty with him. And again, I could sort of pull him out wide. And he, he told me years later that he goes, oh, yeah, I remember your serve. He goes, it kind of gave me some problems. Again, it just shows you that you always, you didn't always need power to perform your strategies out there. Well, I'd love to touch a little bit on the mental game of tennis to get where you were, number 18 in the world, in the top 25 for four years on the circuit, which is the WTA. If you ever get tight, what are some of the things you might think about to help you get through a match? I think then I had, you know, this tunnel vision where I could block everything else out like a horse with blinders and just focus on what I needed to do. I knew also to stay calm because that was something instilled in me by my dad. Again, he was trying to, you know, model me after Chris Everett, who didn't show much emotion. And so I think by keeping sort of that game face, even if somebody was winning, I never let them feel like they had it in the bag. And even when I was winning easily, say in a match, I just kept my emotions focused right on the task at hand and uh, not thinking too far ahead, 
which is a good life lesson too, I think, is just focus on what's right in front of you. And what was right in front of me was that 5-4 game point, let's close it out and let's get off the court quickly, you know, and not mess around. You are all business. All business. And I think now I try to employ more breathing and seeing how I can be calm. I think also routine is very important. So I kept to my routine, whether it was getting ready to serve or getting ready to return, is having those routines that were comfortable and that I knew would serve me well. So I I still try to do those today, you know, because they just ready you for the next point or game. Well, you employed all of those tools at the Ojai tournament in 1979, when you got food poisoning and puked your guts out, drove the porcelain bus all night, and then you had to play the quarterfinals. And then if you won, you'd go to the semifinals, and then the next day, the finals, and you have nothing in you. How do you, I mean, that's not just relaxing, that's physically, chemically, your body needs sustenance and you don't have it. I mean, the brain then is now the one that's getting you through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking exactly that. How, how am I going to best get through this? I guess it's just this sixth sense that kicks in and says, okay, you're going to have to really conserve what energy you have and not make any unnecessary errors. If I was focused normally, I was like ultra focused and almost out of my body because I played flawless tennis. And you get to the finals. Yeah. And then had to play Kathy Jordan. And we were both vying for the number one collegiate player that year. Uh, We were both freshmen. She at Stanford, me at USC. We played on that, the big stadium court at the Ojai. The stands were all full and everything. So it was a big match. And again, I just did what I needed to do. and, And it was like the food poisoning was just outside of me. And I was just... I didn't feel tired or anything, but I'm sure that I thought, I don't want to lose this second set, you know, and have it go to a third set. So again, just conserving all my energy and and being laser focused. Okay. I got to summarize that. That is the power of the mind at work. Well done. So moving from college, you, freshman year, you are the number one singles player in collegiate tennis as a freshman. Love that. You continue your education, you decide to go pro. Or is that something that you decide back in those days? How did that work? Starting at age 17, I played my first professional tournament in Portland, Oregon as a, an amateur. And Tracy Austin and I flew up to Portland, Oregon. We both started off in pre-qualifying. Slowly but surely, we started knocking off the seeds in this tournament and uh, both made it all the way to the finals. Then you got sort of to go up into the main tour for two weeks, which was then the Virginia Slims tour. A little bit of background here about the Virginia Slims circuit. It started in 1970 and consisted of originally nine female professional players. The original nine, as they were called, with Billie Jean King and eight others, rebelled against the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association because the prize money for women was much less than the men received. And the association didn't offer many women's events at all, which left less opportunities for women to succeed as professional tennis players. In 
Billie Jean King and the other eight players enlisted support from World Tennis Magazine's Gladys Heldman, who had a good relationship with advertiser Philip Morris, the tobacco company. They collaborated to organize the Virginia Slim Circuit, which eventually became the Women's Tennis Association. Right before, let's see, my second year uh, as a sophomore, I won my first professional tournament. The next week, the rankings came out, and I was like, whoa, I'm like number 18. It sure was like a shocker. Like after a half a dozen tournaments, here I was top 20 in the world. Wow. Because I went on to some of these Virginia Slims tournaments and I was winning around here or there and the draws were small. So you'd win a round or two and you were already in the quarterfinals, you know, playing against Virginia Wade and Martina Navratilova. I had a good run at the U.S. Open after my freshman year where I got to the round of 16 and I beat uh, Diane Fromholtz, who was number one from Australia. So you're doing the Virginia Slims tournaments at the same time that you are in college. Yep. And the professors were not all that happy or supportive of me. I'm like, oh, I'm leaving town for possibly a week or so. Can I have the homework that I'm going to be missing? And they're like, well, you know, (laughs) I kept up with my studies. Again, I was just very diligent. I took my homework on the road. You know, I still got good grades and all that. I had a goal going into college that I wanted to win the individual title and I wanted to win the team title. And I think I also wanted to get top 50 in the world. So once I had hit those goals and finished my second year and we won the team title against Stanford, who we lost to in our freshman year in the finals, I was like, okay, now's my time to do this. That was my entry into the pro tour. I think I turned pro right after the collegiate nationals and actually traveled to Wimbledon with some of my teammates, Barbara Hallquist, Sheila McInerney, probably Trey Lewis, you know, there was a few of us that, that all went together to, to play Wimbledon. So yeah. Nine, 19 years old. Yeah. I, 20. I just turned 20. Yeah. Yeah. Virginia Slims was a sponsor with the gal with the cigarette, you know, and I still oh, yeah. have some of those, uh, famous sweatshirts, which, you know, is kind of ironic that here a gal smoking and we were all athletes, but yeah, we were forever grateful to that sponsor as well as those original nine and Billie Jean King, which, you know, was super instrumental, the whole title nine. Billie Jean was not only fighting for tennis rights, but for all women's rights that if there was a boys tennis team or I mean, any sort of boys team, you could play on it if you were a girl. A quick refresher of Title IX. This was an Education Amendment Act. It was signed into law by President Richard Nixon in 1972. It basically says, No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation or subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Billie Jean King was a huge advocate for Title IX in women's sports. I just want to go back a little bit, and this is how instrumental my dad was, How what forethought he had. So here I am at Beverly Hills High School, and I'm going out for the girls' team, and my dad says, you know, the boys would give you some more competition, and you should go out for the boys' team. I did whatever my dad said, okay. So I tried out for the boys' team, and I made the boys' team. I was the first freshman uh, there at Beverly Hills High, and we had two nationally ranked players on our team. Perry Wright and Howard Schoenfield. 
so then they all graduated in my second year I ended up playing number one because of title nine once I started I could finish my years on the team so I played number one my uh, sophomore junior and senior years that's fantastic so you could play women's tennis in the fall and the men's tennis in the spring you're you're a year-round oh. athlete for tennis yeah no I but I didn't I never even played on the girls team oh, oh. <laughs> I think I was on the team but then I you know you couldn't play on two so I I said, oh, I'm going to go out for the boys team. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. well, you just smoked everyone. <laughs> I mentioned that story because I just think, wow, how neat that my dad sort of egged me on to do that because I was very comfortable around guys. I played at the park with guys. You know, I think it just instilled in this thing in me, like, just go for it. Like, just go for it. And he was such an admirer, not only of Chris Everett, who is, you know, the cool cucumber, but of Billie Jean because of her exuberance for the sport. You know, how, what a strong woman she was, is, still. What an open mind for your dad, because that era was tough. I mean, there was no diversity, equity, inclusion in that era. Mm-hmm. Correct. So you're in college and you're playing the pro circuit. Do you get your degree from USC? No, I stopped college and my dad and mom were very pro-education. So my dad had passed away when I was 18. Oh no. So that was a really pivotal year for me because I was entering college. He would have loved to have been at every single match of mine. And I think being at USC and having the community of people um, saved me because I just probably couldn't even have dealt with the grief of his death. Just having the, the, all my buddies at my, on my USC tennis team, we were so close. And I'm still close with those people today. I want to say I dealt with his loss, but I didn't really deal with his loss in that um, he died. And the very next week, I went to the U.S. Girls National 18 and under tournament in Philadelphia because I, I didn't really know what to do or how to handle all this. He died while I was playing the Maccabea games in Israel. And I remember saying to my mom, well, what do I do now? And she said, well, you go to the next tournament. So I packed my bags and literally went to the next tournament by myself. What's very interesting uh, for me, even having a psychology background, is that the next year when I turned 19, that was my, my meteoric rise, if you will, to 18 in the world. Because that's how I guess I dealt with it at that time. I didn't deal with the emotions. I just put it all into tennis. Focused on tennis to keep your mind off of the other. Yeah, yeah. Getting back to your question about when did I finish my education, my dad, you know, I thought, okay, he's passed away, but I know how important it is to get my education. So that's when I decided, okay, just kind of burnt out from the tour, a few too many injuries. I don't have the joy in it anymore. And I'm going to go back to school. And I had already applied to UCLA and got in. And I say UCLA because now having been a pro, I was going to have to pay for my own education. And we all know that, you know, a USC scholarship is worth quite a lot. And uh, I had, remember having a conversation with my brother, like, how do I do that? How do I go from USC to UCLA? It's like, <laughs> who cares where you get your degree from? Just go. After two years at UCLA, Stacy gets her sociology degree and starts a master's program in psychology at Pepperdine. She needs to work too, though, and she finds an opportunity 
that might not have come around if she hadn't been a pro tennis player. I'm not, not really sure what I'm going to do with my life other than I've been teaching tennis for about 10 hours a week. And at this time, I had found a job from the UCLA job board at uh, Raider Institute, which I thought I was signing up for to be an intake counselor that was treating people for depression and eating disorders. So I go for the interview. The CEO of the company happens to know my name from tennis. And he goes, I know you, you played professional tennis and you went to USC. He goes, you're not going to be my intake counselor. You're going to be my exercise counselor. Again, not knowing anything about what I was going into. I didn't, all I had was my undergraduate degree. And most of these people I was going to be working with were psychologists and family therapists. And I can't count enough of my lucky stars that I got what you'd call an internship now, but I was getting paid. Here I was 30 years old. Like who's going to hire an ex pro with just an undergraduate degree to go into the psych field? A tennis fan. Yeah, a tennis fan. And guess what? I started giving him tennis lessons. <laughs> the CEO <laughs> in Century City. That's great. Well, it sounds like the guy also by knowing tennis, he knew that you could do the job based on all the mental game that you have to do in tennis you could apply that to this work and could be a quick study. It was a great experience. And this one gal who, you know, she was the lead therapist and she taught me uh, how to do group therapy. And then I got to work with a dietitian on staff. And so much of that training was just incredible. And then to be able to get my master's in clinical psychology alongside that, it was a, a phenomenal training. To that whole field. And so you were able to, to dovetail your degrees and your tennis and you merged it all into integrative health nutrition coaching. And that's your business now. Yeah, that's what I love. I mean, of course, being in that field of eating disorders, I had to deal with the extremes of people's history with their weight and how they ate and all this. And I was treating people that were 500 pounds and had been marathon runners and trying to get them to have a balanced look at exercise that how do I get this person to kind of change their whole philosophy about how to take care of themselves. And then I was also helping treat, you know, people that were like 86 pounds, you know, that were on the other side with the anorexia and everything in between and that were suffering from depression and, and other things uh, that you see with eating disorders. It really also made me look at, hmm, some of my training methods weren't so healthy. They were very much focused on the physical and how hard I could train and how little could I eat before a match so I could maintain my weight like a boxer. So transitioning from an athlete to now like this normal person who doesn't have athletics in that way in my life anymore. So it's like, okay, how am I going to exercise in an hour and still feel okay with that versus the four hours that I used to do? But then even still, when you would do four hours, you still wouldn't tell yourself that you could eat anything you want. Right, right. It was still very rigid. And was that common in pro tennis that everyone that you knew were kind of the same way? You know, again, when we were competing, as other athletes will tell you, you don't talk about 
what you're really doing or what's wrong with you or what's working well. It's like, because you don't want to let anyone know your secrets and show a chink armor. You just kept to yourself. Also in those days, we didn't have coaches that were helping us along and uh, directing us. You were pretty much on your own. If you had a problem, you didn't go to therapy or anything like that. You just kind of dusted yourself off and worked it out yourself and got back on the court. I did know of some athletes that were struggling with eating disorders. And what a lot of us probably had was, I know for me, I had a very much a perfectionistic personality. And you see it in gymnastics, you see it in ice skating, you see it in a lot of sports. And so in the case of like that, say that 500 pound marathon runner, you know, if, if life throws something at him and that person doesn't have the tools to cope with it, then they'll use their food to either take it away or hide themselves in it by eating more or go back and forth with it. So the tools are so important. Nutrition and the mental aspect of tennis are huge components to playing at a person's highest level. To help round out her training, a professor said that Stacy needs to see what it's like on the other side and recommended that she herself go to therapy. And I had never been through therapy because remember, you know, if I lost, I just dusted myself and got back out there. I didn't go in and figure things out. That's when I started doing my own journey and going introspective and figuring out why I did certain things, what my family was like. At 30, 31 years old, I was just starting to kind of figure out what all the different emotions were. And I just thought there was, you know, when you win, there was happiness. And when you lost, there was sadness. And that's it. I didn't know much else in between. It's very concrete, you know, very all or nothing, very perfectionistic. That was novel to me. To be able to live in that gray area, it was like, whew, this is a relief. I don't have to be happy all the time. And it's okay if I lose and I can still feel like a good person. Mm. You know? Wow. I bet you'll find that as, as you talk to a lot of, a lot of athletes. Stacy learned a lot about herself from tennis. The mental game, some argue, is more important than the physical. Everything started coming together for Stacy's career focus when she got certified as an integrative nutrition health coach. This was a program, this Institute of Integrative Nutrition, where I could do it online and it was an 11 month program and I would come out with this certification as a certified integrative nutrition health coach. And I thought, this is right up my alley. This was just like an eye opener for me, for my own health. I, I needed to look at some things, you know, regarding sleep and all of that, you know, stuff that was outside the box of just nutrition and what you're putting into your body, mm -hmm. but more like, okay, what is the whole lifestyle looking like? and then started working with clients in that respect. I was working with them in a different way and working with them for anywhere from three to six months at a time. And that was really exciting. You know, the serendipitous way of finding the next chapter is just, and it just works out. Yeah, it's putting yourself in the right place, like doing something healthy, not really having too much concern of what's going to follow afterwards. But again, just kind of, Playing that next point, just doing what's right in front of you and being excited about that. And then who knows where it'll, it'll lead to. 
Stacy has lived in Ojai, California for over 20 years now. She and her husband Ian have an outdoor adventure company called Trails by Potter, where they guide guests on hikes, rock climbing, biking, and of course, tennis training. She's worked with a few local businesses, one of which is the Wild Academy, a world-class junior tennis academy in Ojai, as their integrative nutrition health coach. And I thought, well, now here's where I could really make a difference and plant that seed in a 13, 14, 15-year-old, 16-year-old's head. And who knows if they're going to stop drinking their Coca-Colas or whatever, but I'm going to give them the information and then maybe somewhere down the line, it, it'll help. Well, what other advice can you offer a young tennis player who might be wanting to go further with that or someone who is just learning a sport? Is there some advice as an athlete that you might be able to provide our listeners? Well, I know for me, it was a lot about the physical training, what I could do on the court. And I do see this with new athletes now, how they're employing sports psychologists to help them with the mental, how they are paying attention to their nutrition, and just to make sure you're well-rounded and that you have a balance and that it's not just all about tennis and all about winning, but are you doing well in school? Do you have a, a normal social life? Taking care of your health. I mean, one of the things my dad did tell me, and this was towards the end of his life, is that without our health, we don't have anything. And so for me, now that I'm working with health coaching clients, um, it's all about integrating all areas of your life. And uh, with the tennis players, you know, so when I give lessons now and I'm working with young kids, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the mental aspect. I'll talk about, hey, I don't really want you yelling at yourself and putting yourself down, as well as my 67-year-old tennis students. Like, that's not okay to do that. You've got to treat yourself more kind. And we don't really go forward with negative motivation. For me, even as a, a player, I thrived on positive reinforcement. And again, giving yourself time off too. If you're a training athlete and you're working you know, so hard every day, see what that feels like to just rest your body and give it that nurturing time off and doing fun things. And maybe that is having an ice cream sundae and uh, going shopping or something mindless, you know, just to reset yourself. That's great. If you take time off, you're not expected to be at the level that you were, so you're more relaxed. And next thing you know, you're just as good or better than you yeah. were. Yeah. And back in the day, I was, didn't want to take more than a couple of days off because you're fearful you're going to lose it. And, but now, like you said, now that, you know, you and I are trying to maybe compete or just have fun with our tennis, it's like, yeah. You know, I take a week or two off. Uh, when I come back, I am more focused and relaxed and I don't, at least I don't try to put those expectations on myself or I remind myself like, hey, you are out here for exercise and for fun. So let's keep it that way, you know. This was fun. Hearing Stacy's journey from pro tennis into integrative nutrition health coaching. She provides great insight on the importance of taking care of ourselves physically and mentally. Proper nutrition, exercise, and a balanced lifestyle are the key to maintaining focus and mental toughness. Love what you do, do what you love, and taking the right next step keeps us on the path to our goals.
Find Stacy on Instagram at ohipotter or the web, stacypotterhealthcoach.com. Music for this podcast is created and produced by Gary Ferguson. Technical support and creative consulting by Tony Ferguson. Final executive approval by Quinn Ferguson. Become a part of the Empowering Women Through Sports community. Learn when a new episode comes out by subscribing or following us on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at EWTSPod, and it's super helpful when you share with your friends. Thank you, and keep charging. <laughs>